appreciate you being here this morning. This is the fourth and the last of these lessons on end-of-life care. That is the particular kind of ethical issues that we are faced with, will be, and probably have been faced with, that deal with when do we allow someone to die? What is our role in helping someone to approach their death and the kind of issues that arise that we're faced with? And as you know, these are incredibly delicate issues. Come in, man. I've done this each of the classes. I want to go ahead and do it again today, and that is to put this within a perspective that I think is very profoundly expressed here in Psalm 90. Come in. Lord, Thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another. Before the mountains were brought forth or... Ever the earth and the world were made. Thou art God from everlasting and world without end. Thou turnest man to destruction. Again thou sayest, come again ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, seeing that it is past as a watch in the night. As soon as thou scatterest them, they are even as a sleep, and fade away suddenly like the grass. In the morning it is green and groweth up, But in the evening it is cut down, dried up, and withered. For we consume away in thy displeasure, and are afraid at thy wrathful indignation. Thou hast set our misdeeds before thee, and our secret sin in the light of thy countenance. For when thou art angry, all our days are gone. We bring our years to an end, as it were, a tale that is told. The days of our age are threescore years and ten Though men be so strong that they come to fourscore years, yet is their strength then but labor and sorrow so soon passeth it away and we are gone. But whoever regardeth the power of thy wrath, for even thereafter as a man feareth, so is thy displeasure. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Amen. The subtitle of this series that I've had is that uh, the Lord is the Lord of the living and the dead. That yes, our life here in time is in a sense a way of experiencing the presence of God and also of glorifying God. I think as Christians we live with this sort of expectation and also a gift that we have the ability to know holiness in life, that God has created the world in such an unbelievably fascinating, wonderful way that God can actually be present within the world. We don't have to leave the world to find God. God finds us here within our midst. And so we have this capacity to experience God's holiness throughout all of our lives. As the Psalms in many ways talk about, the mercies and the glory of God cover the heavens. But we also have the expectation, the responsibility, the gift and the privilege to glorify God, to act in ways that give testimony to the presence of our Creator in our life, that I have way in my actions towards others, my family, my work, my own inner life, to give testimony that we all live according to a greater purpose, a greater reality surrounds us, and we have the ability to testify on that. You know, for instance, I mean, I'm trained in my particular field, but 
uh, I, I know absolutely nothing about astrophysics. Do you, any of you know anything about it? And, and so if somebody expected me to, to you know, come and give a lecture on astrophysics, I, I would be in the embarrassment. But we have the capacity to give glory to God. I know enough to give testimony to our Creator. The Lord has given us these capabilities, these experiences, the memories, to be able to say, I do this to the glory of God. I think those responsibilities are always on us. Well, that is with our living, but I've also wanted to say in some of these issues we've talked about, it is also with our dying. That as Christians, we are preparing to be able to die in a way that we can say, here is the holiness of God. Not the absence of God. Not the removal of the divine presence. But in the midst of the divine presence, and that I want to die in a way that gives glory to God. So our Lord is the Lord of the living and the dead. Well, I've been trying to think through several different ways to think about this in terms of these, these end-of-life ethical issues. I started off with rather, I have to admit, simplistic, though I think it's it's suggestive way of contrasting the Christian ethic with what I call the popular non-religious ethic. It's popular because it has become very, very prevalent in our society. And it's not based on any sort of religious orientation at all. And that's based on those two principles. I won't go over this in a lot of detail. If you've been with me, you've heard me think this. But the primary aim in life is to personal freedom and happiness. And that is I should always be self-determining or it's called autonomous. And that is to give me as much freedom as possible. Whatever can lead to my autonomy, my self-determination and my freedom is what I should choose. Okay, and the virtues that are necessary for such a commitment as that is control and management over one's life. Now, as plausible as the popular non-religious ethic is and as prevalent it is, I think the Christian ethic, though, is different. Uh, it is committed to another set of values that doesn't necessarily in all kinds coalesce with the popular view. And that is our aim of life, as I've already mentioned here, is to experience the holiness of God and to glorify God. We do this through the commandments of love, to love our neighbor and to love, our, our, to love God and to love our neighbor. That I have to bring these commands to me, to these decisions that we make. And because of that, we experience guy, uh, life as a gift. Uh, my life is a gift given to me. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't make myself. My existence is something that is given to me. And we also believe, as uh, will be said in the Nicene Creed, uh, when in the 11 o'clock hour when the communion service is, or if you ever say the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the resurrection of the body, life eternal. That too is a gift. And how I use my gift in time is in a way a schooling for me to how I use my gift in eternity as well. And then finally, uh, I need to always act in a way that I represent something, not just my own interest, my own wishes, but I represent a cause that's at least 2,000 years old. And if we accept the apostles' testimony and Christ's testimony of the scriptures, it's 4,000 years old. And that is, it goes all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. I stand in a great tradition, a great legacy of people who have tried to give witness and glory to God. And so I need to act in a way that fortifies, undergirds, and strengthens the church's witness in society. All right. I've looked at various issues as I have done this. So shut your eyes as I go through this quickly. I want to get down to what I want to say today. 
And I want to talk about this issue, and I suspect there are several medical people here today that have had to deal with this. It's probably one of the most taxing, vexatious, stressful decisions that anyone has to make, and that is when to stop treatment. It goes under this phrase, medical futility. Uh, unfortunately, though, uh, the word futility is attached to this decision about when to, um, to stop treatment. Uh, what's unfortunate about the word is that it, it's almost like, okay, we have to give up. Uh, I'm walking out of the room. I have no obligations to the patient. And, and that's not right. Uh, even when the patient is, is destined to die quickly, I do think that those people who are there to give medical health care still have obligations. It's just changed in the situation. So I think probably a better term is when treatment is inappropriate, when medical treatment may be inappropriate, not necessarily futile. Now that decision obviously represents scientific evidence, and there should be good scientific evidence there that this person is not going to survive. They're in a particular state, that there's no hope of recovery. We'll talk about some of those in just a minute. But it's also a value judgment. It also involves how we look at the quality of a person's life. Uh, what is the value of this person? Uh, what is it that we're all about? All these kinds of big questions, really huge questions. You remember when I started a month ago, I talked about that little book, Come Let Us Play God, uh, by Leroy Augenstein, and he said that what we have in medical science today is that we're forced to try to answer questions that we used to think only God could deal with. And that is, what is a person and what is, what is the meaning of life in this situation? What is it that we're all about? And we think, well, these things are rooted in, in God, in our relationship to God. But with these medical issues, we're having to make these choices. When are you a person when you're not? When are you dead when you're alive as a person? What is all this about? What is the meaning of life when a person is in such a situation as this? And so this is part of what makes it such an ambiguous issue. The science alone, like I said, those of you who are in medical science know this, is not necessarily conclusive. I mean, how many people have been pronounced dead and all of a sudden they come back, or vice versa? Uh, there's something, I don't know what the right word is, I'm not going to say fickle about it, um, undetermined, yes. There's something undetermined about... Uh, giving an accurate reading of somebody's physical state. And on top of that, there's the spiritual state as well. The emotional self, the personality of the individual. They're not just organs. They're not just chemical makeups or physiology. They're persons with a story, with a narrative, with what we call a soul. There are people involved with them. People's whole lives are invested in these people. And so there's not just a body there that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a world. And so how do, we, how do we bring these two together? <clears throat> uh, when we think of perhaps when medical treatment is inappropriate, we th would say that it has no physiological effect. You can do it, but it just won't make any difference. That wouldn't make any sense sometimes that if, if we could make a difference that we should stop, that it would be inappropriate if we could make a difference. No, it's inappropriate because it doesn't make any difference. It's not efficacious, that is the particular treatment, whatever it may be, from, from drugs to uh, respirators to pumps and so on. It's just not going to be efficacious at all. And it may be that sometimes the results would be more burdensome, that what would be the consequence of the treatment would make matters even worse. And then often we think that um, it'd be inappropriate if it was just purely speculative. If all of a sudden we now we just treat 
the, the person as a cadaver and we're speculating about what to do. And so when we're in these kind of situations, we're faced with this issue, should we continue medical treatment? There's always the possibility of error, always. Uh, I've not known many of these. I've read about a lot of cases in which errors have been made and judgments about futility. And so that should always make us cautious about should we make this decision? Uh, that's why as many, as many people as you can bring, well, as many relevant people as you can bring into the decision, the better off. To make sure that uh, the decision is balanced off, uh, that uh, everyone who can make somewhat of a discerning judgment about it has been asked to come to be part of it. Just as an example, I, I probably shared this. My, my father died of a heart attack. Uh, we thought he was very, very healthy at 56. He first had a heart attack, and then he had surgery, and then he had another heart attack, and then he went into a coma and he died. And uh, I forget how old I was, 34, I believe I was 34, or something like that when he died. And, and I remember we were sitting in the chapel, my mother and my other two brothers, um, and our wives, and so on. Uh, and we were thinking, what, what are we going to do? What, what's the choice that we have to make? And so we asked several of the doctors to come in and talk to us about it. Should you remove, uh, we asked, is, is it futile to keep him on the heart pump and the respirator? And all of them said yes. All of them said yes. And so once we heard that, we made the choice, yes, go ahead, and let's take him off the respirator and the heart pump. And he died two days later. And in retrospect, we have no regrets about that. I think we made the right choice. Now, some people might disagree with me on that, but I felt like there was no way he was going to recover. He had reached a point in which it was inappropriate to kind of keep him on these things. And so after consulting with a number of people, we just didn't make that choice ourselves. We wanted, maybe it was psychological, maybe we needed that. I didn't want to live with the rest of my life thinking, you know, my dad might have been able to recover from this, but we were too hasty. Well, for that reason, I think people need to be very, very cautious about these decisions. And then the fourth point I have here, I can think of instances, and I think you could too, I've known of a few of them, in which you can continue doing something in which maybe the physician, physicians, nurses, and so on, would think this is inappropriate as an act of care and compassion to the family. That is, if a family is struggling, we, should we let our child die? Have we done everything possible? Have we looked at every possible angle to keep our child alive? And the physician may know that this treatment is not going to have any efficacious effects to it, but to help the family to come to some resolve that they've done everything possible, I can see in some instances like that, that it would, go, it would be good, I think, to have a care in which the physician might think for that moment might be inappropriate as a way to help the family come to that. But eventually, the family will have to make that decision. Okay, before I move off of this, these are sort of the big guidelines about inappropriate treatment. Anybody have a question or a comment or an illustration that you might think would help us understand this a little bit better? Okay. One of the big issues that's involved when people make this decision about when treatment is inappropriate, that is, we should stop 
treating this person, is with this issue the quality of life. It's used a lot. Uh, it's like one of those very, very important essential words that we keep all the time. But it's really hard to define exactly what that is. Very hard to understand exactly what quality of life is. You can think of some instances in which, you know, obviously a person has lost any quality of life. Remember I talked earlier about those rare cases in which it might be the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do, the caring thing to do is to contribute to a person's death, to help them to die because they're in such abject pain that the torment is so great they can't even understand who they are in the world. That in those kinds of instances they're being ripped apart by the pain, so to speak. I can think obviously the quality of life is very, very low in an instance like that. Then on the other hand, you know, some people obviously go through a lot of life with stress and strains. The whips and scorns of time, as Shakespeare called it. All of us bear the marks of those. Everybody suffers in some way or another. I mean, I, I've got bad knees and some days they hurt so much, I think I don't have any quality of life. But I'm not going to ask my wife to euthanize me over that. <laughs> I, hope, I hope she doesn't think that. Um, and, you know, some people deal with pain greater than others. And some pains are more endurable than others. Maybe some people handle physical pain far greater than emotional pain or vice versa. Vice versa. So you can have a lot of pain. You can go through a lot of stress in your life and still think you have a quality of life. So we have these kind of extremes. So what is it? How can this idea of the quality of life help us think through? making decisions about when is it time for a person to die. Well, we tried this, this in quotation marks, this comes from the Center for Disease Control. I was looking for some sort of pithy definition of it, and this is how they define the quality of life. It is perceived physical and mental health over time. Now that helps us a little in understanding what the quality of life is. But what are the two big questions that this one leaves us with? Health, what's that? That's an important concept, isn't it? Right, but what is it exactly? What is health? And time, how much time? A year, two years? How much time is the proper time to, in order to experience the quality of life? Well, the reason I'm sort of, I'm, maybe I'm acting like a, 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 too much like an academic asking these questions I can't you know, give you clear answers with is that isn't it amazing how so much of our life is wrapped up around some ideas that we know are absolutely essential. They're like lights. They turn on things for us. We've got to have them. But they're ambiguous. There's something inherently sort of inexplicable about these ideas like health and quality. And even life and time, these sort of issues are so essential to our self-understanding, the understanding of others and so on. But nonetheless, they resist any kind of definite one and only explanation and definition for them. Well, what's involved in this um, is we, we try to balance this idea of the quality of life with adjusted life years. This is often a decision that is made. I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, my brother, uh, with, I might have mentioned this, with whom I'm very close, um, he came down with throat cancer back in late spring. And at first, it looked very, very negative. Um, he had struggled with some illnesses over his life, but nonetheless, he came down with this. And uh, at first, it seemed like uh, he wasn't going wasn't to make it. 
And the particular kind of cancer and the place that it was situated, uh, it made surgery impossible. I mean, there was a surgery for it. And the physician said, and the physician didn't recommend the surgery, by the way, that it would have so restricted his life that he didn't know if his life would have been better by the surgery or not. So all the hope was on the chemo and the radiation. And praise the Lord, that worked. He is now in remission for that. But Terry was making a choice. Should I go ahead and have surgery and then have a quality of life that I guess he'd be basically bedridden. He wouldn't be able to swallow. He, he lives alone. And so he, he said, no, if the chemo doesn't work, I'm not going to do surgery. And so thankfully that the chemotherapy and the radiation worked. Uh, but he made that choice about if he lived this number of years in such a state, would it be worth it? Would it be worth it? Now that's all, once again, that's a very hard decision to make. We're now factoring in time. How much time is enough to determine either you're having quality or not having quality of life? Is it a year, six months, a month? How much time are we looking for? Now, I want to think a little bit about what this notion of quality means. Uh, some of you may work in a, 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 an operation, and our, our university does that. We have what you know, quality control, quality management. That's a big buzzword these days, quality. Uh, it's been around a long time, though. What is, what, what is quality? We usually contrast it with quantity. You know, quantity is usually measured. We add things, that's something quantifiable. But what is quality? What is something qualitative? I believe what we, at least what we hope we mean by the word quality, is that it's the capacity to fulfill purpose. Like if that chair broke every time I sat in it, it wouldn't be a very qualitative chair. It wouldn't have a quality of a chair. I mean, it still has a purpose. It's just because it breaks its legs all the time, it's not going to fulfill it. A quality of life is someone who can fulfill their purpose. That is, they have the means, the capacities, the potential to fulfill a purpose that they have, that's been given to them, that they're aimed for. It gives them some sort of identity and focus and meaning in life. To have quality of life is to have the capacity then to fulfill one's purpose, an aim, a goal that is given to us. Now, we define that in those words there, great words. I'm not for throwing them out, but but again, they're ambiguous words, aren't they? Well-being. Quality of life is when you have well-being. Or you have health. Or happiness. And we judge this notion of quality of life based upon those kind of criteria. Do you have well-being? Are you happy? Do you have health? All right. With those considerations, <clears throat> I want to contrast what I put up here as the two different ethical ways of approaching these end-of-life issues. The first is the popular view of ethics. That is, it's autonomy and freedom. And I have quality of life then when I can exercise freedom of my life. I have quality when I have the greatest amount of self-determination. And as long as I can have some sense of self-determination, then I have a quality of life. But when that capacity is taken away from me to be my own master, to determine the value of my own life, to make decisions that lead to what I want, to be the happiness of my life, then I am lacking quality. And this idea, I think, is becoming more and more so in our society. 
that we're going to be finding more and more people who will wish death. We talked about this last time with suicide. More and more people are now realizing that since the aim of their life was to be self-determining, to maximize as many of their preferences as possible, to gain all their self-appointed goals, more and more people, I think, are thinking that this is it. There, there's, there, there, there may be great responsibilities that we all have and are subject to, but when it boils down to it, what really constitutes the ethics of something, morality of a choice, is if it leads to personal freedom, if it leads to my own sense of autonomy, that I'm actualized as the person that I am. And so I can reach a state in which I have no quality of life. Therefore, it is time for me to die. I cannot act in a way that would fulfill that purpose. And, of course, as you know, a lot of illnesses and diseases and injuries can so mar a person, disable a person, agonize a person to the point where, yes, they don't have much self-determination. There are not a lot of desires being met in that kind of state. And I think that there's going to be put there's going to be more and more pressure put upon healthcare professionals, institutions like clinics and hospitals and med schools and so on, to help people take control of their lives in this way. We're going to have to just deal with that. I think that's an inevitable fact in our society. Well, I want to contrast this with the Christian view. Now, I, I, the, for some, this may seem too neat of a contrast, and I don't mean it that way. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful people whom we love and admire who are very much committed to the popular view of ethics and they think that's the right way. But I do think because we want to identify ourselves as Christians thinking and living in these kind of issues that we are inheriting a moral life. We have received a legacy of how to act that gives presence of the holiness of God and testimony to the glory of God that we're not making this up. I'm not the first person to try to be a Christian. I'm not the first one to try to think about how to glorify God. But rather, I have received this great narrative, this great story, the great legacy of Christian witnesses. And my primary responsibility is to give glory to God. And one way I do that is to ask, can I act a way that would further that great legacy that I have inherited? Is my action, my commitment to this, is it also consistent with the apostles, with the first century, second century, third century, 20th century, 21st century Christians all around the world that are committed to be faithful to the Lordship of Christ? Am I now part of this kind of great story? And with that said, I think we need to bring these kinds of issues in here. And that is, whenever we're thinking about the quality of life, that is a person is having to make a choice about whether medical treatment is inappropriate or appropriate or not, we have to ask these questions. Can our action here give testimony that God's holiness is as much present here as God's holiness would be in a bright sunny day or in a great enjoying enjoyment or a great experience that we have or in the wonders of of nature or in the singing of hymns and in the presence of, of, of worship and prayer, can I in some way or another find God's holiness in here? Now, a lot of times in these kind of very, very moments of great duress, people feel an emptiness. That is, the horrors and the sadness is so great in these moments that there seems to be a vacuum of God. We're now in a realm in which God is not. Well, think about the points in Scripture the times in which people die, 
in Scripture, in which the Scriptures also tribute the holiness of God to be very much part of that presence. When Abraham died, he died an old man. It says he died in fullness of years. It was a testimony to God. And our Lord, when Christ died, when he was on the cross, that even the presence of God, the triune God, was very much alive there in the death of Christ. The agony. You know, I've shared with you last Sunday that great artwork by Grunewald, that sort of expressionistic depiction of the suffering, the agony of Christ on the cross. That's also the holiness of God. We should, we will grieve and we will cry and, and we will just barely be able to make one step go in front of the other in these moments. But we should also be aware that God is there, God's presence and holiness is there, that we're never in the vacuum. There is no spiritual empty places. And that's because we know that God even is in the suffering of Christ. And so whatever decision you make, you have to make it with that awareness that God is actually in that midst. That some way or another we can experience the holiness of God in this decision. But also, I think um, we have to ask this question, would this give testimony to God? Would this help a person to appreciate the gift of not only what they've had in their own life, in time, but also the gift that they will have in eternal life? That the Christian is not without any sense of hope even in these very despairing moments. That, you know, and God forbid, and, and, and I, I don't know this about any of you, but I suspect probably it may be true with some of you, to lose a child would be one of the worst things one could possibly think of to go through. And, and I suspect if I had to, um, I mean, if I were in a situation like that, I think, where is God in all this? It's a very li- real psychological experience. But... Because God is there in that midst, I can still find a way that can give glory to God in a situation like that. Not in a a, a sort of facile or flippant way, you know, God wanted this and I give glory to God. But how can my hope that the gift of life is not ending with this loved one's death, but it is going to be re-given in the gift of eternal life? Can I welcome my persons, my, my friend, my family, death, with that notion in mind that they are now moving into a realm of a gift that's eternal. And I give testimony to that. I am not defeated by this. There's a famous philo- a theologian um, that some of you are familiar with, uh, Gil and I have talked about him, Karl Barth, uh, who is brilliant, just brilliant. Um, so much to say, unbelievable, what he has to say. Very knowledgeable, very, very orthodox. But it was said, I read a biography him once, that he lost a good friend. Uh, I forget to what. I think it might have been a disease. And at the funeral, uh, he was a pallbearer, and probably some of you have seen this, or actually have done this. Uh, A flower was given to each pallbearer, and they were to rest the flower on the casket. Well, when Bart went up to it, instead of resting it on the casket, he threw it down. He threw the flower at the casket. Now, of course, that was you know, very typical. And he was asked later, why did he do that? And he said, well, I defy death. I defy death. He wasn't going to give in to it. He wasn't going to say, you beat me. You took love away from me. You took the gift of life away from me. He wasn't going to give in 
to what may seem to be the most final of all final things, and that is death. And so, and the reason why he did it, because he believes in the resurrection of the body. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. He believes that there is the gift of eternal life. And so we're never defeated. We're at a loss. We're grieved. And some people will grieve until they die because of the loss of these sort of loved ones that we all go through. But we're never defeated for that. So the question would be this, the criterion. How can I act in a way in this decision that would give testimony of the welcoming of eternal life? Now, you, you, you probably won't maybe better answers than I can give you on this. Um, if you came in here wanting an engineer to tell you how to put together a bridge or, or even put together a sauna, that's how I got this scar on the top of my head. <laughs> my, my wife bought a sauna and I just banged myself a couple of times, almost knocked myself out trying to put that thing together. Then you've come to the wrong class, if that's what you want. I don't think an engineer can fix these sort of problems. There is no ready-made answer that makes all this go away. The complexities and the anguish to go away. But what I'm trying to present here is that you can still be a Christian in these things. You can still give testimony to God. You can still have courage and faith and hope even in these moments in which it looks like there's nothing there to cling to, to hold on to. And the sorrow is so oppressive it's like a thousand pounds on your shoulders. But we can still act as a Christian in those kinds of moments. I want to talk about this issue. <clears throat> this too is a very difficult issue. And that is what's called the persistent vegetative state. Now the word vegetative is very uncomfortable for many people. That is, you become a vegetable. You probably have heard that way, they're a vegetable. Uh, maybe we ought to come up with a different word, but that's the phrase that has been used to describe this. What happens to a person when they're physically alive but no mental life? Now, I even want to sort of back off from saying that. I mean, even in those kinds of instances when a person is in the persistent vegetative state, the mind is still functioning in certain ways. There's still cerebral activity happening. But typically what we mean is that there is no personality there anymore. There's no person with a story. There's no person with a future. There's no response. There's no identity that has happened to it. That is, they're alive. Their heart is beating. Their lungs are breathing and so on. But they've lost their personality. And this is the persistent vegetative state. Oh, just as an aside here, um, <clears throat> one thing I do like about the idea of being vegetative is that uh, it does suggest that that part of us that is vegetative, physiological, is essential to our identity. It, it's not that I have a body. I am a body. I'm an ensouled body. I am like a coin, I don't have a coin, but it has two sides, not just one side. I am a body, but I'm also a soul. It's not that I'm a soul attached to a body, I'm an ensouled body. I have to respect my body as much as I respect my soul, uh, as an aside to that. I do think one of the, the tendencies of our society is to think we have bodies, not that we are bodies. That I can do whatever I want to with my body. It's just kind of like a shell that's trapped my autonomous self. It's something that I can manipulate and manage in any possible way. It's not really me. What is me, kind of like what the ancient Gnostics used to think of as the spirit, 
is really myself, my autonomous self, and I can do with it whatever I want to. I can change it, I can malign it, I can mutilate it, I can whatever. I can do whatever I want to. My body is kind of like an experiment. I think it's part of our modern experiment. How can we live as though we have bodies, not necessarily that we are bodies? You know, one of the biblical accounts uh, is that we were made from dust, and God breathes in us, and the scriptures said we became living souls. We became animated life. In a sense, I have the same DNA as all the dust of the world, the dirt of the earth, and so on. But I'm a living soul. I am a body. And so this notion of being persistent vegetative state, we're still dealing with a human being here in this persistent vegetative state because they are ensouled people. I want to talk in our last moments here. Some of you I know have to go to the 11 o'clock service pretty soon. Uh, this issue of feeding tubes. Um, my retired primary care physician was a man named Crawford Owen who a uh, long, long time uh, physician at uh, Baptist Montclair. And I'm not sure why we found him when we came here, but somebody recommended him. And he was a wonderful primary care physician, very knowledgeable, tremendous diagnostician. Uh, diag uh, he could diagnose. I could walk in and he would kind of know what was wrong with me. Uh, I was a little suspicious that he was talking to my wife all the time. Uh, <laughs> But he had been at it such a long time. His diagnostic abilities were just incredible. And he knew that I, I taught at Stanford and taught philosophy and some theology and ethics. And so he always kind of wanted to talk about issues. In fact, I saw him recently. He's, he's now retired. He's, he's fairly feeble, but he's very active at Canterbury Methodist. And I did a series over there back in the fall. And he was there in a wheelchair, very attentive. But, you know, he would want to read some of the stuff that I would write, and he'd want to talk about it. And so he was always very keen on ethical issues, especially medical ethical issues. And he told me once that he has told his family that whatever, do not put me on a feeding tube. Do not put me on a feeding tube. You can put me on a respirator, heart pump, whatever, dialysis machine, but not a feeding tube. And in his long experience, he came to the realization that families have a far easier time, though it's always hard, but easier saying remove the respirator than remove the feeding tubes. And I've thought long and hard about that. And I've actually kind of shared that with my wife, too, that ever came down where I was in this persistent vegetative state. It looks like I'm not going to make it. And I've lost my ability to relate. Don't put me on a feeding tube. Now, I can understand both sides of this argument. I really can. And so I'm just going to offer you one side of this. You're more than welcome to reject it, argue with me or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this idea of removing a feeding tube, uh, it is obviously an effort to allow a person to finally die. As I told you, my father was on a feeding tube, but they took him off the respirator and heart pump, and he died in two days. Some people, though, stay on feeding tubes in this persistent vegetative state for a long time, a very long time. One of our neighbors had a daughter who uh, went into a deep, deep, deep coma, and she talked to me about this, and I mean, I, I, I really, I don't know if I helped her or not, I really don't. 
But her daughter, Becky, was on a feeding tube. And our neighbor asked me what I thought about removing the feeding tube. And I tried to be more compassionate than dictatorial to her. I I wasn't going to give her a lecture. I just kind of told her what I thought would be a mother thing to do. And she came to the conclusion that I am her mother. I cannot remove the feeding tube. I cannot do it. I am her mother. And I'm in agreement with that. I'm totally understanding of that. And I don't know if I, if one of my children or grandchildren were on a feeding tube, if I, if I as their father, grandfather, could remove a feeding tube, I don't know if I could do that. But, you know, one of the reasons that people come up with about why is it wrong to remove feeding tubes is it's starving a person to death. You know, if we got Gil here and tied him up and didn't feed him or give him water for a week, how long would it take to kill you? <laughs> Just <laughs> hypothetically speaking. I don't know. Um, We'll come back in six months and we'll know it'll be over with. We would have starved him to death. To death. You've got to have water. You've got to have food to live. If you don't, you're going to die. Well, uh, in the persistent vegetative state, a person may be physiologically alive, but personality, there is no personality in a sense. There's no recovery of their personality, their soul, their spirit, so to speak. So in that sense, removing the feeding tube and allowing them to die is not necessarily taking that away from them. It's just allowing them to go ahead and to die. So I can understand why a family might make the choice to remove a feeding tube because the person is already, in a sense, dead personality, even though they persist physiologically. But I can also understand why a person, keep, you know, a family just cannot remove a feeding tube because it is so basic to our appreciation of life. Now, it wouldn't be right for, to remove a feeding tube if a person still has hope of recovery. In a sense, then you would be saying, I'm wishing your death. You have a personality, I'm going to remove your feeding tube and you're going to die that way. I, 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 that would be very, maybe in the rarest of cases, justifiable, but on the whole, not permissible. But let me conclude with this. In this very difficult decision in which you as a parent, a grandparent, a husband or a wife have to make that choice. That is, I'm going to let my loved one here, my friend, die in this persistent vegetative state. My point is, this is not an act of despair for a Christian. This is not a resignation of hopelessness. That is, death has defeated us. It's not. In fact, as I've encouraged you before, and I will do it here in this last point, is that in such moments, I think it would be completely relevant and pertinent to what it means to be a Christian, is to, is to pray in those moments, to sing hymns in those moments, to read psalms, to have someone come and give the communion to the family, that we welcome this death because it is also a welcoming of the gift of eternal life as well. And we are not defeated by this. We've got about a minute or two. Anybody have a question or an observation? Yes. Um, is there any thing that's, that's taught us in the Bible or in Anglican tradition uh, about the, what heaven is like? And more specifically, because that's the, that's the question I've always had and always hear a lot, is what is heaven like? Will I see my loved ones again? <clears throat> and... Um, 
accept or, or believe that we'll be in the presence of God, but will I see you, will I see my wife, children, whatever? Again, is there any teaching about that? Well, I, I've got something to say about that, but anyone want to make a comment about that? Your understanding of heaven? What you think the scriptures or the Anglican tradition or any tradition teaches about this? Well, first, it does teach it, that there is life after death. That we are raised in a spiritual body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Incorruptible, immortal, and eternal with God. That is, just as I am made now to relate to time and space. I occupy space. I communicate. I eat. I live. I'm organic. Those are relevant to live in time and space. God will make us relevant to live in eternity with him. Now, the example that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's an analogy, but, I mean, we're talking about things we do not have pictures of, by the way. Other than the, 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 the resurrected Christ, we have no facsimile of what eternal life may be. Is, that is Paul's analogy, it's like an acorn to an oak tree. They're quite different in shape, aren't they? Very, very different. But what's similar? Oakness. You will be you in eternity, but in a different form, incorruptible eternal and immortal. And I do think that we will recognize one another in heaven. I do. You see, when, when, you're, when you're talking to somebody and they're, they're coming to deathbed, it's really, to me, it's really important. It would be really important to tell them that I really believe that we're going to see each other again on the other side. I, I believe that. I think that, that is consistent with the basic teachings about eternal life. That we're not just going to emerge into kind of a timelessness, a void, a, a blur, a blob or something, or just we all become God. No, we don't become God. We are still the creatures, and we get the gift of eternal life with us. And so, as St. Augustine said, and I think he was great in many ways, and this is one of his great statements, that, that we Christians, we, as he's called, servants of God, should not regret our temporal life, because it is the schooling for eternal life. It is the preparation it is endowing us with the capacity to even appreciate God more in eternity. Well, thank you. I appreciate this. I'll, I'll conclude with a quick prayer. Our gracious Lord, I pray blessings upon all of us that when we are faced with such moments as this, we'll feel the certitude of thy presence, thy prayers, thy healing, thy hope given to us in these moments. This I pray. Amen. Amen.